United Lutheran Seminary presents the Seminary Explores podcast, conversations on faith, art, people, politics, theology, life, and more, with voices from around the corner and around the globe. Preachers and even those who listen to preachers might not know the names of the people who are in the deep background of what they're preaching or what they're saying or what they're thinking. Today, we're going to try to uncover some of the giants of theology who by the process of osmosis or by reading or by some other means have become influential on the teachers and the people we hear about. Our guest is in a unique position to tell us about this because it is his field and because it is his passion. He is Dr. Eric Crump, who is an independent scholar and is also a distinguished former professor of systematic theology at United, then Gettysburg Lutheran Seminary, and by the way, is also a person who, um, who loves to uh, share what he knows with small groups of students and others uh, in his own home and in his private time. I'm Jerry Christensen. Glad to be back with the Seminary Explorers. A number of uh, commentators, um, Eric, have said that the three great figures, not necessarily theologians, of the 20th century were John the 23rd, Martin Luther King, and Billy Graham. Now, if we were to say who were the great theologians of the 20th century, may I start with my nomination, and then you can reject all three. But let's get it started by saying the three Bs in my case. And if we know those names, great. If we don't, we should. Bart, Bultmann, and Bonhoeffer. Would you agree with that? Change it, add to them, or subtract? I would change it. Um, I would definitely agree with uh, Karl Barth and uh, Rudolf Bultmann. Uh, but instead of Bonhoeffer, I would, uh, I would definitely cite uh, Paul Tillich for um, having the sort of uh, the greatest effect and influence and over the course of the 20th century and uh, into the early 21st. Uh, and why are they important as far as you're concerned? There, there, there are differences here altogether. One is that Bultmann was a New Testament scholar who, who in a sense, uh, used the New Testament um, studies to, to write theology, in effect. Um, uh, Tillich, is a, would you say, is a philosophical theologian. Bart always thought of himself as a church theologian. I, you can comment on all those, please. Um, it's interesting that sort of that uh, um, Bart, the title of his, uh, he would reject the title systematics. He would always, he always prefer the title sort of um, dogmatics and hence the title of his uh, massive opus, uh, The Church Dogmatics. Um, but it's, uh, for Tillich, Tillich wrote um, uh, two systematic theologies. One has never been translated that he uh, wrote when he was in um, Frankfurt and Göttingen in the late 20s and uh, early 1930s. Um, uh, but his major major work, systematics, that he wrote in English in the United States, and which he said, uh, especially for the third volume, could only have been written because he had been, lived in the United States. Mm. 
Um, hmm. But uh, Tillich, uh, uh, from one of his very earliest writings, um, when he uh, had to go through his exam for his Habilitation in, in Germany, and one thing that he had to write was um, a precy of his understanding of theology. And he entitled his uh, um, uh, work, he called it, uh, um, uh, I think the, the best title would be um, um, Ecclesial Systematics. Mm. And so they, uh, and the very first sentence of his systematic theology is that theology, systematic theology is a function of the church. Yeah. Very first sentence. You don't understand it till you get to the third volume and then where he spells out his, his um, ecclesiology or his understanding of the spiritual community and the the church as the manifest uh, spiritual community of the new being and Jesus as the Christ. Um, uh, but I, I would include uh, uh, Tillich in, in that regard. Some of the more famous, uh, what do we call that, uh, brief um, statements that summarizes theology that, that might be known in the popular um, mind even today were, for me anyway, uh, what grabbed me as a non-systematic theologian, I know we're all theologians, but was, was the, accept the fact that you are accepted. I, I think that's a, a great summary of the Christian gospel. And that's his, isn't it? Is it from yes, a sermon? Yes, that's the phrase that he um, uh, developed for his understanding of justification. Mm -hmm. uh, before that, he was very influenced in that regard by his teacher, Martin Kaler, at uh, Halle uh, University. And um, uh, and also someone that uh, Bart took serious notes on for his... Now that was even, going to be a even, question. Even though he didn't acknowledge well, it. Um, I, would think, I was going to say, what's the relation to the two? <laughs> Unacknowledged importance. <laughs> um, but one thing that unites all of them and sort of, I think, was their, um, their profound attention to um, uh, hermeneutic slash methodological questions, um, each in their own distinctive way. Uh, Bart, with his development of, you could say, of a um, uh, scriptural hermeneutics and, his, and hence his great influence on the development of narrative theologies. Um, uh, later, um, Tillich, with the question of the interpretation of uh, symbols and, and how all interpretation is culturally mediated. And, um, and uh, Boltmann, um, similarly in terms of, uh, explicit in terms of the hermeneutical questions in terms of how one understands uh, the kerygma yeah. and the question of uh, the New Testament and uh, demythologization. Um, um, Profoundly, but but all three, in one sense, were you could say, um, uh, were interested in sort of how theology addressed uh, the contemporary world. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, and you can. They had great differences in understanding, but also um, um, 
but another one other thing that sort of united them and made them, I think, uh, distinctive was um, um, they could talk to anybody. They not only wrote scholarly tomes and everything, but then in terms of their their sermons, yes, that, yes, uh, yeah, just yeah. had an incredible effect. Uh, or uh, even if one looked at sort of uh, Tillich's famous um, radio broadcasts to uh, uh, Nazi Germany, that was a secret government project. And every Saturday night for 20, 20 minutes, he gave a radio address. Um, and they later published those um, many years after the Second World War. They had to be declassified first. Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, about 100, 142 radio addresses, uh, selective uh, edition in English appeared as a called against the Third Reich. The the, uh, the 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 factor of the Second World War. All three were Germans. Uh, Bart was Swiss, but they all were deeply influenced by the Second World War. And is, is there is a sense then? That, that, that helped them kind of reject, a, pardon me for being too simplistic, a kind of 19th century, almost Pollyanna, certainly very optimistic theology, the so-called liberal school, and I'm not using this in the <laughs> political sense, of uh, big names like Schleiermacher and others. I mean, Bart was quite clear about that. Did, did the Second World War, uh, certainly the German experience, um, the Nazi experience, influence all three? Oh, it influenced all, all three of them. And in different ways, um, uh, and even some of them were surprised. I mean, um, Bart was, for instance, was really surprised when um, uh, Boltmann signed on to the Barman Declaration. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, mm -hmm. um, each of them, in their own ways, was uh, virulently sort of um, yeah. anti. Nazi, um, and for all of them, I think it was uh, sort of it was uh, it was sort of like the theological primacy hmm. that uh, we should obey God rather than men. Yeah. It just yeah. cut across that yeah. tradition. You could say from mm -hmm. Melanchthon and the end of the Apology to the <laughs> Oxford Confession, <laughs> for we should obey God rather yeah. than men. Um, um, and the resistance to sort of uh, tyranny um, for all three of them, the emphasis upon uh, freedom was uh, amazing. Before we move on from Bart to uh, Boltmann, I'll, I'll just tell you one anecdote. We're going to full of, full of these, filled with these today, Eric. And you can either shoot one down or just leave it. But I, there is an apocryphal story about Bart that may it may or may not summarize the alley, but it's a great story. He was asked in the United States when, during a, a, a teaching tour, uh, what, "Dr. Bart, what is what is the Christian gospel?" What, and he said, "Well, you Americans have it right here. You have a song. It goes, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so.' Apocryphal or not?" No, it's 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 it uh, it's, it's true, uh -huh. but it should be supplemented with other. Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, accounts of uh, Bart, where he said, so like, "Well, how do you uh, what characterize your theology?" And Bart said, "In one hand, I read the Bible. Yes. In the other hand, I read the, the newspaper. newspaper. Mm -hmm. 
and I read both of them, and then I tell you what I think. <laughs> <laughs> Boltman, you know, I mean, this is the one. Uh, I, I'm I'm enough older than you that that he, in a, uh, in a in that generation in which I grew mm-hmm. up, really kind of frightened a lot of preachers. Oh, Boltman. What gave him that? You used the word earlier about Boltman, um, which was uh, to demythologize. Now, what in the heck is mythology in this case? And what was what was Boltman trying to do? And nowadays, we don't think it's frightening at all. And in fact, it was quite insightful. But at the time, it made a lot of people nervous. Um, I think people sort of uh, thought that. Um, uh, Boltmann's program of demythologizing was uh, a program of elimination. So I'm going to cut and I'm going to remove things away. Uh, and that's something that he resisted. Uh, his uh, favorite way of characterizing it was, was that um, it was demythologization is a form of deobjectifying. And an object for him is something that is set up as an idol. So to de-objectify something is for Boltmann is to remove false securities. So he relied upon Luther's great distinction between the certainty of faith and how certitudo is different than securitas. So he saw it as a function of uh, the gospel. The gospel robs you of all security and gives you the uh, consoling certainty of... um, The main thing is to get back to the essence of the gospel. There's a terrible... (laughs) I loved it, but there was an awful ditty that floated around the Divinity School when we were younger. I was there even before you. It went... Um, hark the herald angels sing. You know this one, you're nodding. Hark the herald angels sing. Bultmann is the current thing. They'd still sing if he had not demythologized a lot. <laughs> uh, but it does get at the essence of his thing. You don't have a, 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 a central dogma of angels. The central dogma is Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he wanted to, to make sure that, I mean, he was uh, passionately, uh, 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 beholden to, to the gospel mm-hmm. and wanted to get rid of anything else that might have detracted from that. Yes, and I mean, it's interesting, his famous essay, New Testament Mythology, ends with uh, reference to the word became flesh. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's sort of, which is sort of, sort of ironic because in many ways, Many people have argued that's precisely where Bart began with this. Right? The word became flesh, and uh, but for um, uh, Boltmann, and this is where uh, um, it's that paradoxical character of uh, the cross, the salvation event that um, 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 has to be preserved and. For him, that's, it's that the identity that the crucified Jesus of Nazareth is the risen Christ. That is the fundamental core. Paul Tillich may not be to you the most important, maybe he is, but he's certainly one of your favorites because if you weren't actually, 
in school when he was still teaching. I think he, you'd probably come to Chicago after he had passed away. Yes. Mm-hmm. But obviously the spirit was still there. And um, seems to me often when we talk, you, you frequently live in the world of Paul Tillich. Um, we, we already talked about accept the fact that you are accepted. Mm-hmm. And my, um, everyone would be glad to hear the third and final joke, if they're even qualified to be that, is one asked, well, where is Paul uh, Tillich buried? And the answer is, well, in the ground of being. Now, anybody, <laughs> you and I laugh at that. Why was this idea of the ground of being, the ground and power of being? I just read a, a letter somewhere saying how much that meant to a man who was a, learned that from Tillich in those days, became a pastor and a teacher. Mm-hmm. What, what does that mean in the ground of being? Um... One, it's sort of an indication or a reference to something that, that's primordial. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, you could say, um, it's something that uh, you, can, you cannot uh, escape, you can't get around. Anything that is presupposes the ground of being. It, it's, yeah. You could say it's always already there, yeah. but it's something that you can't grasp as an object. Because as Tillich, his other phrase for characterizing that is that it's not only the ground of being, it's the abyss of being, mm-hmm. the Abgrund, which is um, in sort of classical theological terms, Tillich would say, this is the aseity of God. Um, God is the ground of God, but there is no ground. Um, for God, outside of God's self. Um, um, so in that regards, for Tillich, it, it's, a, it's a very classical phrase, but it, it also indicates, you say, for him, sort of the ground. It's, 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 uh, I think in volume three of the Systematics, he characterizes at the end, he cites uh, the famous passage from Paul's Romans chapter 11, um, and it said, from God and through God and to God are all things. And I think that um, um, served to sort of hold things down. So that um, uh, for Tillich, in using that phrase, and many people accused him of being sort of a, a Platonist or a um, yeah. one that... Uh, didn't pay attention to eschatology. And I think that uh, for Tillich, there's um, um, uh, for instance, he never he never says in anywhere in the, in the systematics that um, um, uh, uh, being itself is God. No, no. It's always God is oh, being itself. Yes, but, yes. But uh, this is some place where I think I like the his earlier formulations of it, where, where he, and it's a phrase that he gets from a person that he wrote his two dissertations on, Friedrich Schelling. God is the Lord of Being, and um, uh, and Tillich also uses a phrase that was later picked up by Eberhard Jungel in his magisterial God is Mystery of the World that uh, God is more than being. Uh, um, and Tillich uh, s- said, God is being itself, 
but God is more than being itself. And so, as he put it in one point, he, he said, um, God is, is um, uh, the other side of being. <laughs> Eric Crump is our guest. We're talking about the great theologians of the 20th century who would be likely the ones who influence the ones we hear preaching today, um, either directly or indirectly, always hopefully that they've reflected <laughs> some of that. Um, and we are, are, are welcome him because of his uh, long-standing interest in the figures we're talking about, um, especially since as an independent scholar, he continues to work and to write and to lecture and, and to hold um, informal seminars on these subjects. I'm Jerry Christensen. And uh, I can't let us uh, uh, say goodbye to our audience um, and sign off, Eric, without making a comparison that is uh, known to both of us because we lived and worked with a person who some have said is the greatest theologian of the last half of the 20th century in Protestant America. Others have spoken of it in broader terms, others in more narrow terms, like the greatest Lutheran theologian, etc. It's Robert Jensen, um, and having worked with him and read his stuff where does he fit into these and how did, has he had more likely influence on some of the people we now know are our pastors and theologians and even our friends <laughs> i think uh jensen's biggest influence would be upon the uh the people that he had as students uh especially insofar as they became pastors and um uh, but he had a great influence along with uh, Eric Gritsch uh, through their work on the Lutheran Confessions and whose book was used as a textbook by, by many. Um, but from you could say from the perspective of, um, I would say, the discipline of systematic theology, um, uh, I think that uh, um, Jensen uh, is primarily known for his contribution to uh, the revival of um, emphasis on Trinitarian theology. Um, um, even from his, you could say, from his uh, dissertation mm -hmm. on... Um, but I think that uh, uh, he wrote in such an idiosyncratic manner um, that uh, um, um, he almost had his own language. Sometimes would be um, one would think in one moment, "What a brilliant insight!" And the next moment, saying, "It, I got it. I got to stop and <laughs> unpack." what he, he is saying. Mm -hmm. And um, I think this is where I would say that uh, for Jensen, um, um, in his uh, systematics, he makes a great point in terms that uh, um, he's interested in systematics because it's interested in the truth question. Mm -hmm. um, I find him more to be sort of a um, 
dogmatic theologian, and I don't mean that in sort of in a, a pejorative term at first. Um, but I think that uh, um, um, uh, there were certain limits to sort of questions that he just couldn't consider. I see. Mm-hmm. That I think um, mm-hmm. um, um, one can't uh, dismiss as cavalierly as uh, as he did. I I see what you're saying. Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He did. He did um, attempt to cover all the bases. Did he not? Um, the, the the famous book on the Trinity, another on the sacraments, and of course, then there was the popular uh, word and promise. Uh, so it's out there. And I think you're saying that at the moment he may have influenced students. So yes, the people out preaching now would probably remember Jensen well, but uh, not necessarily yet other theologians. No, no. And I think that for at least for theologians, when when I read German theologians mm-hmm. um, or European theologians, and they refer to uh, Jensen. Mm-hmm. Um, they refer to Johnson on the in relationship to the Trinity. That's that that that's the one that has that, st- struck the note, uh, right? The chord. But in terms of his other parts of his theology, mm-hmm. um, no. I mean, for instance, his um, his great uh, uh, friend Wolfhard Pannenberg. Um, 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 and they have in- interesting parallels and um, uh, appreciated many things. But uh, um, Jensen, in his systematics, um, ends up uh, uh, advocating high Mariological claims. Yeah. And um, claims that they're, all the Mariological claims are based on um, uh, John one and the Word became flesh, mm-hmm. and uh, even though, if you ask Roman Catholic Mariologists, they would say no. no they don't go there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, um, for Pannenberg, the Mariological—that's uh, where Jensen has the famous line in his book that, whereas in Volume One, I somewhat hesitantly affirmed. Sort of like the the historicity of the empty tomb, and um, in this volume, I without hesitation affirm the gynecological virginity of Mary. And for Wolfhard Pannenberg, that that's that's just sheer poppycock nonsense, and and uh, so it was. Uh, um, yeah, uh, he could have his moments. Yes. <laughs> uh, Eric, before we sign off again, one more thing, and I have to ask briefly: there were giants in the earth. Of course, we think that, given our age and our generation, in the late twentieth century, have we the promise that this is also happening now in the first half of the twenty-first century? Can you answer that yes or no, and explain in just a few words? Um, no, I think there are some theological giants. I think that. Um, uh, they're much harder to recognize, mm-hmm. partly because of the changes in 
theological education. Oh, well, yeah. Um, um, because uh, uh, sort of when one sort of the sort of rarefied atmosphere of systematics. Uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, good point. They're the, the, the the systematicians are the ones that you could say are a mm-hmm. theologian's theologian. Yeah. And, uh, but I would say the biggest thing is just the change in theological education and that um, um, we don't have the sort of... Um, dominant influence of any one particular theological tradition the way that mm-hmm. um, you could say did for much of the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, um, and so there are giants there, but um, uh, they, they escape uh, public yeah. attention. Harder to recognize mm-hmm. nowadays. That's another subject altogether. Mm-hmm. Things they are changing, Eric, and maybe we'll come back sometime and say why they are and what how that affects systematic theology mm-hmm. and the way some of our pastors and uh, lay theologians and all of the people in our churches are now hearing the gospel. It has it has made a, a tremendous impact on mm-hmm. them, and we're living through it right now. Mm-hmm. Eric Crump is our guest today. We're pleased to have him talk about the great theologians of the 20th century, particularly the last half of the 20th century. I'm Jerry Christensen for the Seminary Explorers. Thank you for joining us today, and have a very good day. You have been listening to the Seminary Explorers a production of United Lutheran Seminary with campuses in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We invite you to visit our website at unitedlutheranseminary.edu. All opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of United Lutheran Seminary or the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America.